Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Film School Fess-Ups. I'm your host, Drew Morton, Associate Professor of Mass Communication at Texas A&M University in Texarkana. Before I get started with our final episode of 2018, a conversation with Dan Humphrey about Ingmar Bergman's Hour of the Wolf, I thought I'd take a brief moment to kind of sum up some of my favorite home video releases of 2018 in case you're looking for Christmas gifts or holiday gifts for your uh, cinephile friends. Uh, I wasn't quite ready to do a best of 2018 considering how many films I still have to see, Um, but I thought this might tide you over, Um, especially if there's still a little bit of time in the, uh, the Criterion sale. Um, so my, my, my choices are pretty diverse. There's some, obviously some Criterion titles on here, and we're going to be discussing probably one of the best titles of the year today, uh, indirectly, which is Ingmar Bergman's Cinema by the Criterion, uh, folks, which has, I think, about 30 of his films all boxed together. If you get it during the sale, it's about 150 bucks. It comes with this beautiful coffee table book. Um, and as I talk with Dan about it, uh, Criterion has really done a great job of kind of curating, uh, the, 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 the films in such a way that they're grouped with films thematically. Uh, they're not necessarily put on the discs in chronological order. So they're, they're trying to really bring out, uh, ties between early work and later work, uh, that, that may not, uh, be obvious in trying to kind of make it strange in, insofar as I can tell, I'll, I'll admit right off the bat that I'm very much an Igmar Bergman novice and that will certainly come out in the conversation today. Um, so that is definitely a, a set worth checking out. Alphabetically going through the rest of the list is uh, Criterion's treatment of a matter of life and death, with, which I think I mentioned on an earlier episode. It's one of my favorite Palin Pressburger movies, the uh, oscillation between Technicolor and black and white. It's it's incredibly beautiful, and it's nice to finally see it uh, get an HD transfer. Uh, behind that is the Batman complete animated series by Warner Brothers. I was really a bit ambivalent uh, on this title, uh, considering the work that they had done on Mask of the Phantasm. I thought the upgrade from DVD was relatively minor. Um, but the folks at Warner Brothers have done such a thoughtful and beautiful restoration of the entire series that they're, they're really to be commended. It's a it's a beautiful piece of work. Behind that is uh, Color of Pomegranates, which is uh, another Criterion title. I still don't really know what this film means, uh, just like today's conversation about Bergman. Um, outside of Italian and French-European cinema, my knowledge especially when it involves historical context and industrial context, gets a little faint. Um, So I don't really know what the film means. Uh, It's certainly a beautiful piece of poetry, and uh, what I will say is that the Criterion um, disc, especially the uh, commentary on it, does a great job of trying to make a rather dense and difficult film more accessible. So uh, I, I certainly recommend that. Uh, Deep Red, the Arrow disc, uh, is very much worth checking out. Uh, probably one of my favorite Argento films. Beautiful treatment uh, from the folks at Arrow. I'm trying to remember what's all on that off the top of my head. Uh, I think there's some decent commentary tracks in the usual. Um, the Dietrich and von Sternberg and Hollywood box set from Criterion, which I've mentioned on a previous podcast. Five Tall Tales, the Bud Bedecker Randolph Scott set from Indicator, which is probably my second favorite label of the year um, between that and their William Castle films and, and Night of the Demon, which is also on here. Uh, it has alternate cuts. These these are really two amazing box sets. 
um, that they've put out and the amount of care that they've put in the essays and getting folks like uh, Christina Lopez to do uh, some videographic works on the the Bedeker set it's it's tremendous uh, their Sam Fuller sets great too I had forgotten to mention that one um, Igmar Bergman Cinema as I mentioned Night of the Demon which we covered in the previous episode or two episodes before rather and uh, the, the last two on the list are Tree of Life the Criterion um, kind of director's cut and I'm going to be honest I didn't love Terrence Malick's Tree of Life when it came out um, I thought it kind of felt like a Calvin Klein ad that had the delicate whispering over it and I didn't really know what the hubbub was about uh, I, in general, prefer his earlier work, but uh, the director's cut adds some really deep uh, character work that enriches the piece, um, in my opinion. And the extra 20 or 30, maybe it's even 40 minutes of footage, actually, I felt made the piece go faster because um, you, you have more invested with the characters, especially uh, Brad Pitt's uh, father figure. And finally, uh, the last on my, my top 10 home video releases of the year is the Universal Complete Classic Monster Collection. Um, I, I picked this up around Halloween for, I think, $75, and there are like 30 movies in there. Uh, Universal's packaging is a little weird, um, I think, I, because what they've basically done is packaged the uh, box sets with the individual series in there, so I think you get Al Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein maybe three different ways. Um, so there's some redundancy in the discs, and you'll get duplicates, but um, just in terms of a, you know, cost to bang for buck ratio, it's it's hard to argue with 30 movies from Universal's kind of classic horror period for, for 70 bucks if you can get it on sale. Um, so th those are really my titles. A couple other runner-ups that were really great were Criterion's Magnificent Ambersons, which I've been working through, really great conversation with James Nairmore and Jonathan Rosenbaum on there uh, and uh, True Stories uh, the uh, David Byrne film was uh, quite interesting as well um, we've got a decent December coming up Panique coming out from Criterion uh, a French crime film that I, I very much enjoyed I haven't seen it in a long time so I'll be curious to revisit that and uh, I'm trying to think of other things I have on order that I, I won't have checked out by the time this comes out uh, the De Palma arrow box set but I, I feel like that's a little more of a deep cut um, so those are those are my 10 picks and uh, I, as I said at the front end I, I think they're all really solid in terms of providing um, some needed context for these films it's again not only do they all nearly provide flawless AV transfers but they provide some great scholarly uh, some scholarly uh, kind of accompanying texts that are are very much worth your time. So today I've got Dan Humphrey on from Texas A&M proper. We actually met back in April when uh, his university invited me down. Uh, so let me plug him. Uh, Dan is an associate professor of film studies and women's and gender studies at Texas A&M University. He's the author of Queer Bergman, Sexuality, Gender, and European Art Cinema, as well as numerous articles for journals and anthologies including GLQ, Screen, Criticism, Postscript, and a companion to the horror film. He's worked for the Sundance Film Festival and is a programmer for the George Eastman House and Image Out, the Rochester LGBT Film and Video Festival. So... Um, before I actually go into our conversation, let me start off by saying that, again, I'm a 
Bergman novice, and um, I had seen probably five or ten of his big films, and this was a tremendous learning experience for me, so I hope you enjoy the conversation, and uh, I really thank Dan for spending 75 minutes giving me a kind of a masterful uh, lecture on, on Bergman and his, uh, his film Hour of the Wolf, so thanks again, Dan. Thanks so much for joining me today, Dan. Um, I'm going to ask you the first question I always ask uh, my guests, which is kind of what got you into movies? How did you choose the path that you have, have set yourself upon uh, in this life? Well, like a lot of people, probably a lot more than are willing to admit it, I think ultimately when you get into academia, uh, you know, I was just always totally in love with the movies, and, you know, from the time I was like six years old, I mean, I can remember watching, you know, the Oscars, maybe not that early, uh, you know, like back when I was eight years old, wondering, you know, why this stupid sounding sequel, Godfather Part Two, what the hell is that, <laughs> uh, was winning all these awards when my favorite, The Towering Inferno, wasn't winning any. <laughs> and, and, uh, of course, now that I'm an adult, I'm very happy that The Godfather Part Two actually won those Academy Awards instead of The Towering Inferno. But, but yeah, I've just always loved movies. And at some point when I was about 13 or 14, there was this TV show that I stumbled upon on PBS. And it was on Saturday mornings in my local market. And what it was, was some film professor and i've never quite been able to figure out who it was where was this uh you said well, it was local... in utah oh okay all right it was a national pbs syndicated show uh from someone i think uh in the midwest somewhere maybe or the prairie states you know oh. uh but he would do a little half hour lecture about some film in the janice collection you know exactly what you'd expect this kind of thin dark-haired guy always wearing a black turtleneck of course maybe i'm remembering it totally wrong when i was 13 years old but you know saying all these profound things about the cabinet of dr caligari and fritz langzam and and that just got me kind of hooked on more of the uh kind of learned side shall we say of movies and i realized it wasn't just uh, you know, moved into <laughs> fantasy land, but that there was like cultural reflection going on, and uh, you know, it was a, a part of history. So, uh, at some point, uh, after a few years of kind of working in filmmaking, uh, I realized that I loved walk, watching movies and talking about movies and writing about movies, but I really didn't enjoy making you know standing around on the set having a fuse blown because your lights were overpowering the electrical grid uh and you just have to be so good managing people and it's i find it so stressful like even going back to like the little things i did in high school doing that stuff where it's like you know somebody doesn't show up who memorized the script and all of a sudden you're out and act they're just i don't have patience for for group work so yeah it's Requires a very right. different skill set. <laughs> I almost had a nervous breakdown making a 
Uh, I mean, not literally. We're going to be talking about like literal nervous breakdowns. <laughs> we're talking about Ingmar Bergman. But, you know, it's at the stress level, you know, shooting even a little short movie on 16 millimeter with your friends was just so high. And uh, I remember one day I was procrastinating uh, from going into the editing room and editing this film that I was was making this short kind of experimental film and I just couldn't bring myself to go in and edit it uh, because I was just so fascinated reading this uh, this book on Pasolini uh, in fact I remember you know to this day it was the Naomi Green's book uh, Cinema is Heresy and I thought you know if I would rather be reading an academic book about filmmakers than editing my own film I think I uh, need to go down a different path. So that was the moment I decided to go back and get a master's and a PhD in film. Never looked back. So it sounds like very early on you kind of gravitated a little bit towards the art cinema. Because like I, I, I was trying to think about the first Bergman film I saw today, and it was probably not until college. I saw it, I think, it was. it may have been... I don't even know if we had to watch... Bergman in my European film class. Now that no, we had to do Persona, but we I, I had to watch Seventh Seal and Wild Strawberries on my own. Our our school at UW Milwaukee um, film history was thirty weeks, so it was one and two, and it was both world and American. So you can imagine that you know Godard gets one movie and Truffaut gets one movie, and there's a lot of clips in between. But um, yeah, Bergman and some of the other, you know, non, non-French and non-Italian uh, uh, filmmakers, it was like, it just, it was like a one-off and that was it. And so it kind of existed in this vacuum. So I didn't come around to his work until later. And in fact, I didn't really get into European film really until college, whereas high school was all like, you know, Tarantino and American indie stuff and you know, 70s American movies, things like, you know, Godfather Part Two and, and Chinatown. Um, so what was it about kind of seeing those films in that context of that PBS show that, that kind of, what do you think kind of appealed to you, 13 or 14-year-old you? Like, because some, some of the conflicts in these movies are very kind of profound and existential, and I can't imagine trying to watch Seventh Seal as a 14-year-old and thinking, you know, what, what, I don't know. I didn't catch up with with Bergman until I think I was seventeen. Okay. For some reason uh, they didn't show a Bergman film on that PBS series. Okay. Uh, I remember watching again Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, M, Battleship Potemkin, Jules and Jim, Four Four Hundred Blows. Uh, but the reason I watched it to begin with was it was they were going to screen the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Okay. I could see that. Yeah. As a 13 year old who loved horror movies, I was like, this is a horror movie that's in my horror movie picture book. You know, (laughs) those, you know, those big books you uh, can buy that are mostly just publicity stills of Christopher Lee as the mummy with a little bit of text, you know, between the photos that all kind of horror geek fans, you know, used to buy it. Uh, you know, the bookstore in the mall, back when malls had bookstores. Uh, and, you know, before I was 13 or 14, when I was even younger, I was, you know, fascinated by 
you know, Lon Chaney Jr. as the Wolfman and, okay. and that kind of stuff. But there'd always be, you know, at the beginning of the book, a few pictures from the cabinet of Dr. Caligari and uh, Murnau's Nosferatu, and, and they look good, too. Sure. And so when I saw that cabinet of Dr. Caligari was going to be on PBS, uh, I thought, oh, well, here's another chance just to check off another horror film on my list of horror films I want to see. And, and I didn't realize at the time that before the movie, there was going to be this guy talking. And so I was just kind of waiting for the movie to start. But, but his lecture was really fascinating. You know, he went into the whole thing about, uh, the ending that the producers forced onto the screenplay to make the whole thing turn out to be kind of the hallucinations of a madman and how that stripped the film of its political critique, according to the screenwriters and all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, also how the, the screenwriters claimed that uh, their initial inspiration for the film was seeing a woman go off into the bushes with a weird looking man and thinking, uh, Oh, well that's interesting. You know, they're going off, you know, into the bush, you know, uh, I think it was even like near some carnival sideshow, maybe some, maybe not, but, but then later they found out that a a dead woman was found in those bushes the next morning. Oh, really? I I didn't know that story. And that inspired them to write Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Huh. So, uh, so of course, it was this fascinating story about the creation of this film. And then you see, you know, this this crazy silent film. I think it was the first silent film I ever saw. And I was just kind of hooked from then on, you know. Uh, the guy, uh, whoever he was, uh, I'll find out one day probably, uh, you know, spoke in an accessible way. He wasn't using film jargon or anything. And as a 13, 14 year old kid, I could understand, you know, the lecture and just kind of got into it. And, you know, one of the reasons that I I think I gravitated towards Bergman was that, you know, some of his films, uh, none more so than Power of the the Wolf. Wolf. Yeah have this kind of horror quality to them. And you know, you'd occasionally see like a picture of death from the seventh seal in those horror movie books that you buy as a kid. Uh, so his was a name that, uh, you know, I had known about. And then I think it was a high school drama teacher told me uh, that uh, they're going to be showing these Bergman films down at the local art theater in Salt Lake City. Uh, and I had my mom take me, and it was a double feature of Seventh Seal and Wild Strawberries. And like I said, I was 16, 17. And, and you know, just kind of hooked from then on and, and really got into, you know, European cinema. I, I think in a way there's just something about the the kind of foreignness of them that I really liked, you know, I mean, growing up as the kind of nerdy, effeminate little gay kid in Salt Lake City, Utah, it's like mentally you want to get as far away from there as possible. <laughs> and you can't get you much further. New York, you want to watch a movie set in across an ocean somewhere. <laughs> feel like you're in a totally different universe. And, 
And, you know, those things like La Strada and uh, uh, you know, Diabolique and uh, Rashomon just took you, you know, really to a whole different universe. And and as I point out in my book, uh, you know, the, well, hopefully not my only book, my first book, uh, uh, you know, foreign films going all the way back, you know, tended to be more kind of frank in issues of homosexuality. Sure. And there was also this kind of different European painterly tradition you'd get in the films, which is very different from Hollywood films. Uh, by the mid-1930s and onward. And in the European films, they would like men to look erotically attractive, too. In America, it was strictly sure. di uh, divided by gender. You know, they put the glowing, glamorous lights on women to signify that women were, you know, to be looked at, according to Laura Mulvey's famous line. Uh, you know, the European films that you can look at the guys too, and they put the soft romantic light on their faces. So, you know, in that way, they were kind of appealing to me. But, uh, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, a lot of people think I'm kind of a snob when they first meet me when I talk about Bergman this, Pasolini that. Well, that, that uh, actually starts up on a, on a follow-up question that I was going to ask. And, um... Just a little context for the listeners. You were at this conference this past year on uh, the 100th anniversary of Ingmar Bergman's birth, um, right? It, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, it got me thinking about how certain art film directors have kind of fallen out of favor, both in the Academy and culture in general. Like, I remember a couple years ago when Godard made Farewell to Language, and I think it won like a Film Critics Circle Award. And there was yeah. there was some kind of analysis going on in like the the cinephile press where it's like wow that's esoteric and I'm like it's esoteric to give Jean Luc Godard an award for a movie that that's so strange. Um, and then critics, right? But, but but yeah, I was like I was it was it was just but at the same time I'm like it's Godard, you know? It's not like it's it, that doesn't seem like that deep of a cut to me. And the more I host this show and talk to um, kind of the, the new generation of media studies people, I think one reason is media studies has become so kind of split off, right? We have TV studies and video game studies, and there's so many subfields and methodologies um, that one of the reasons I wanted to host this show is that there are folks who have never seen a Bergman film who are, you know, are going into their first experience and now they have to teach European film history because they have a a job that's you know far more generalized than just being the TV guy, and it's 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 kind of weird to me that it's you know like that classes that used to be bread and butter in the 70s, like a class on Renoir and a class on Bergman, have have kind of they they seem antiquated or, or dinosaur or foreign uh, in a way that they. I, I, I don't know when this happened, and I don't know if this is just me. Does does it seem like Bergman's kind of fallen out of favor to you? Well, I actually think he's coming back into favor. When I was first in graduate school, everyone thought I was just, like, you know, out of another era. You know, how could someone from the 1960s be in graduate school, you know, <laughs> in 2000? Uh, 
and of course that was the era of like uh, of like really high high level Jean-Luc Godard uh, uh, or high volume Jean-Luc Godard studies you know everyone was teaching Godard uh, and uh, and Bergman was just considered way too old-fashioned yeah <laughs> uh, and but I mean he's really come around again you know the Criterion collection apparently is completely sold out almost instantly of the big box set that came out last month uh, celebrating his hundredth birthday you know they're just out of stock everywhere and they're not going to have any more until February, apparently, and everyone's online complaining. I was going to get that for Christmas, and I waited two days. So, uh, you know, people like Bergman again. Like, even my students, there's something about the moment we're in. But part of what happened was, you know, in the 1980s, things shifted over to popular cinema, in academia, you know, and for good reason. I mean, we shouldn't just sure. only be studying, you know, the great masters of Europe and far Asia. And, uh, you know, you started getting a lot of exciting work done on genres and, uh, and the star system within cultural studies. Uh, and even when things started to gravitate back towards uh, international cinema, you know, and instead of foreign films, suddenly we had, you know, a world cinema, sure. global cinema, because you couldn't call them foreign films anymore because that was politically incorrect. Uh, we have to look at things from like a you know, global or world perspective. But, you know, even then, people didn't want to really do studies on individual directors because... It seemed too passe. Yeah, no, yeah, and, and it turned well, because more... Because everyone had read Roland Barthes, you know, yeah, yeah. The author, and everyone had read Michel Foucault's What is an Author, you know, and both of them basically said, you know, the idea of an author is an ideological construct, that's Foucault, and, you know, Barthes said, you know, the death of the author brings about the birth of the reader, we should be focusing on the the point of reception, not the point of enunciation. And uh, so, you know, it was considered—I mean, not just passe, but ideologically pernicious to be focusing mm. on individual directors. That it just perpetuated the myth of the straight white male genius. Uh, and to the extent that people did focus on foreign or world filmmakers. Uh, they that tended to be done more in uh, international studies programs and comp lit programs. So you'd have some French professor teaching the Godard class, uh, some German professor teaching a Fassbinder class, and you know there are very few Scandinavian studies programs in yeah. the United States <laughs> compared to French and German and Italian and Spanish. So, you know, there really weren't very many Swedish professors in American academia teaching, you know, Bergman because there just weren't very many Swedish professors in America, period. I remember when, you know, in his, you know, very controversial and uh, uh, 
you know, very problematic, frankly, article about Ingmar Bergman that came out right after he died, Jonathan Rosenbaum kind of starts mm. out saying, you know, no one ever teaches Ingmar Bergman anymore. You know, he was kind of the, the person, you know, arguing that Bergman was old fashioned and, and so on. Uh, you know, and I almost wanted to like send him a letter or something and say, it's the structure of academia that is behind this. You know, you people only teach uh, foreign language films and foreign language departments, and Sweden's a small country. And and that's so strange to me, because like re-watching and, and going deeper on some of the auteurs that I had kind of overlooked, like Renoir would be another one, where it would it had been like I'd seen Rules of the Game and Grand Illusion, but I had never taken like a deeper dive, and it's like revisiting some Bergman recently and watching more Renoir within the last couple of years, it, what's weird to me is like Renoir seems old fashioned to me and Bergman seems like a glass of fresh water. When you watch something like persona and to see how he's playing with the medium, it's, it's so just kind of radical and out there where it doesn't seem stodgy and something like seventh seal. Like I'd forgotten how funny it was and right. yeah. And how much humor there is in his films that, I think I think they're much richer than you know, I don't know. Maybe they get kind of cliched or you know flattened down or stereotyped as. Um, but yeah, like I, I was I was very pleasantly surprised, but by my revisiting of his pieces. So, yeah, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, one of the things that I think sort of killed interest in Bergman for a lot of people for a while were his uh, '70s films, which. Uh, were kind of slogs, some of them. Mm. Uh, you know, especially if you watched the more widely available editions of those 70s films. For some reason, most of the Bergman films that came out on home video in the 80s uh, were dubbed into English. And the last thing you want to spend two hours watching is a close-up of someone's face uh, with someone dubbing the voice uh, of the actor because the lips not matching is going to be a lot more annoying in a close-up than in a long shot. And, and there is sort of something kind of claustrophobic about f films like face to face and scenes from a marriage and autumn sonata and, uh, and the like. And those are my favorite Bergman films. They actually work better in a theater where, where that, you know, Two hours of of harrowing close-ups of Leave Ullman uh, develops this cumulative power, uh, but when you're looking at it on a television monitor, you know it's just a talking head, and the and the the sound doesn't match the lips. <laughs> uh, but you know, especially I think the '60s films, which are finally sort of getting their due, uh, you know the. Persona, Hour of the Wolf, Shame, Passion of Anna, The Silence. Uh, you know, in some ways, those are really contemporary in how they feel for people. You know, they have this kind of uh, uh, modernist formalism, this self-reflexivity, but they're not self-reflexive in kind of a a Brechtian political way. Uh, they're, 
the self-reflexivity somehow draws you in even closer as opposed to uh, alienating you the way that, say, self-reflexivity and Godard works. Sure. And that kind of stuff, I think, has uh, isn't working so well right now. Uh, if you turn on TV every night and Stephen Colbert's, you know, breaking character. And, and I remember several years ago when it was David Letterman. He'd always like go over and actually grab the cue card out of the cue card guy's hands, and and you know people would laugh. So you know the notion that uh, you know getting a re the reflection of the motion picture camera in the mirror in you know Godard's La Chinoise as being some radical disruption just doesn't play that way anymore. You know people are used to seeing. Uh, kind of nods to the apparatus in there. Oh, it's it's incredibly hard whenever I try to teach self-reflexivity in class because it's like, I'll name examples and they're just like, oh yeah, I never assumed that work looked like anything else, you know, than the than the Simpsons or, you know, The Daily Show where you, you do kind of have that, you know, self-awareness. It's just, it is like oxygen now, um, which is one thing I'm, I'm going to kind of seg uh, into a um plot summary of Hour of the Wolf, which is one thing that did surprise me about Hour of the Wolf because I had known, obviously, that Persona was was very kind of meta and playing with the, the format of film, but I didn't necessarily know or expect that from Hour of the Wolf. So starting off as it does with this kind of fake documentary, right, where it's, I think we see the titles and we hear a voice off camera and Bergman saying, you know, put the chair there and, you know, you're going to sit there and there's these directions to an actress. Uh, and it's it's kind of structured, it almost kind of reminded me of something like Blair Witch Project or something where it's kind of this fake documentary about this woman recounting her husband's disappearance and it's constructed through diaries from him and stories that she's telling uh, the filmmaker. Um, so generally, and if there's anything I leave out, I've, I've very much simplified this across a couple paragraphs. Um, if there's something I leave out and you want to add it because you might talk about it in a few minutes, let me know. Um, but it's really the story of Alma, uh, the Liv Allman character, and, and Johan Berg, who's a painter, and they live on this island and he's kind of in the middle of a nervous breakdown where he keeps kind of talking about these different spirits he sees that kind of influence his work. Um, one day, this older woman just magically appears on this island, which is semi-desolate, like it's not well populated, but we know there's other folks around. And she tells the, uh, the wife to read Johan's diary, uh, and she discovers that you know, that he's haunted by these other memories, including not just the spirits, but of his uh, his former lover, Veronica. Uh, eventually, the couple is approached by a, a rich baron character who lives on the island, and they're invited to dinner. Um, while they're at this very claustrophobic dinner that he shoots in these really tight close-ups, but again, it kind of rotates around the camp. I think it rotates around um, the table in this really strange way. It almost reminded me of those shots in that 70s show where they get high on the carpet and it like pans over it's 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 framed so it it gave me it gave me the willies um but um yeah. Jennings, you know uh there there are these whip pans right? yeah yeah it's like really close and it just whips from one face to the other and you know it kind of gives you vertigo a little bit yeah no i got i, I got dizzy it's watching it oh. 
Um, so yeah, so he's over at the house, um, and then he finds out that the wife of the Baron has a painting that he had done of his ex-lover. Um, then Veronica Vogler. Yeah, Veronica Vogler, and then there's this kind of, they walk home, and a short time later, almost staying awake with, uh, her husband Johan, who can't sleep, he tells her of this hour of the wolf where, where, kids are born and people die and it's this kind of transition hour and while they're kind of up in his moment of insomnia he finally confesses to her his love affair with veronica and also this moment in which he meets a young child while fishing and beats the child to death and we're never what's that and he does yeah he he beats the child to death um and we're never quite sure if it's true or not and then magically one of the guests comes over and there's a gun and Johan takes the gun, fights, gets in a fight over the obsession with Veronica, shoots Alma, and runs away, runs back to the castle where the, the people are hanging out. Um, so he returns to the castle, discovers the Baron and his guests are the demons he's painting. He makes out with Veronica when he finally finds her physically at the the Baron's castle. Um, and then he's kind of mocked and, and teased for this, and the, the demons chase him and beat him. And Alma ends up seeing him in the woods while getting attacked, and he disappears. Um, so I I think that's the long and short of it. Did I did I leave anything out that you feel like you need to put in there to no build I, upon I, I, later? It's it's okay. a it's a hard film to summarize because it's not about plot really at all, um, but about yeah, these these very uncomfortable moments. Right, you know, it very much plays like a horror film. Uh, and I think, in a way, that's why this film wasn't that successful when it first came out. You know, Persona had blown everyone away, and and that, in a sense, was sort of a comeback for Bergman, who uh, had been kind of losing popularity even mm-hmm. among the cinema crowd, who was getting more into the jazzy political modernism of, of Pasolini and sure. Godard. And then Persona comes out, and for the first time in maybe, you know, five or six years, you know, Bergman was really hot again. But he follows up Persona immediately with Hour of the Wolf, and it gets kind of lukewarm to bad reviews from the critics, and it kind of becomes forgotten about. Uh, And I think one of the reasons it does is people just kind of thought, you know, oh, well, he's trying to do a horror movie, and he's not even doing it that well. Uh, and by not that well, I mean that the film has this fragmentation to it. Uh, you know, you're, it's never really resolved whether or not these demons are real or if they're all hallucinations in the mind of Johan. Uh, it also you know, doesn't help that we know if Alma's a, a, a reliable storyteller, because one of the themes right. of the film is where does you know one person's personality when you're married and with somebody for a long time end because you're extremely empathetic towards that person. So is she taking on his worldview and becoming you know? Right, and the first encounter in the film with a demon is when she sees the old woman. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Or that's the first time the audience sees a character interacting with with you know one of these. Uh, people who's supposedly a demon, uh, who initially you're meant to kind of think they're just the uh, the 
degenerate aristocrats who live on the castle in the castle on the other side of the island and then as the film goes on you begin to realize that you know they might not even be human and they're just these demons but uh when people say that it's you know the story of a a, a man and his hallucinations it, you have to immediately complicate that by saying well she's having the hallucinations too mm-hmm. and and that's part of the reason I think a lot of the critics didn't like it because it just wasn't that straightforward, you know. Uh, so they're both hallucinating, or are they real demons, or you know, is it all just Alma's hallucinations? Because at the end of the day, you know, Johan's disappeared, and everything that the audience is learning, they're learning through Alma, you know, who has presented this diary to this filmmaker and has been interviewed by the filmmaker and uh is you know saying well this is what happened to johan but she's uh you know to use that old term uh from from a from your old english literature class you know she's an unreliable narrator she's telling you all these things but they're not exactly adding up either and and I think some of the critics thought that that was sloppiness on Bergman's part, but I think that's actually sophistication on Bergman's part to create this unreliable narrator who you don't know, uh, you know, she's lying to the camera and telling this story that then becomes visualized. You know, I read something, someone said, you know, she could have written that diary that she handed over uh, at the beginning of the film to the, to the filmmaker who's interviewing. So, uh, you know, you, you see a lot of things that, uh, on the one hand, either he wouldn't have been there t- to know about, so how could they have wound up in his diary? Yeah. Or he, that he would have known about, but, uh, you know, really wouldn't have had time to write down in his diary. They have a line toward the end of the film where Alma says, well, he came home and wrote in his diary and then he disappeared again. But, you know, that's kind of a suspicious statement, too. You know, if you're in the middle of being pursued by demons, why would you <laughs> when stop? You come back and write about it. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it's really fascinating in how it forces the spectator to try and develop some sort of theory for what's really going on. And I don't think at the end you can come to any sort of clear conclusion. Yeah, no. And I, and I was going to kind of piggyback on a couple thoughts there. One was kind of adding to this idea of the unreliable narrator, but complicating it with this fake documentary format. And I, I was just Googling on my phone while you were talking to try to find out when David Holtzman's diary comes out, which is like, right, it's, I think it's the year before. I think it's 67 and this is 68. <laughs> So aside from like land without bread, I don't know how many people had really been exposed to this idea of like, it looks like a documentary, but you can't read these kind of formal characteristics of somebody looking at the camera and being prompted to answer questions. And yeah, I'm sure they knew, you know, she's an actress, but but taking this kind of visual rhetoric, if you will, or framing to kind of make it seem as if it's an objective account right to kind of take something that's inherently subjective and present it as being objective is kind of this other sleight of hand um but it also the way in which you describe it and the kind of pockets of ambiguity and how it was negatively received reminds me of something like Stanley Kubrick's The Shining where people just 
hated that film because of, you know, like, well, now she sees the ghosts, and is the house haunted, or is it just him? And, again, the film kind of wants to have it both ways. How does he get out of the closet, right? Um, and, and people read that as sloppiness and um, a mistake and, you know, overblown and poorly handled by Kubrick, whereas it, it's it's obviously increased over time, and people have appreciated that kind of ambiguity there. Um, yeah. I think there's a lot of Bergman in Kubrick. You know, he famously wrote uh, a fan letter to to Stan or to Ingmar Bergman in like 1960. I think he was working on Spartacus because I think uh, it's on Universal International Studios stationery. <laughs> uh, but you know, you don't really think of Kubrick as just writing this kind of adoring fan letter to someone. But there, there it is. You know, it's in the Bergman archives and and. You know, if you look at a Bergman film like The Shining from 1963, you know, you can see a lot of what ends up in The Shining. You know, the the little boy wandering down the, you know, labyrinthine hallways uh, of an old deserted hotel. And in something like Hour of the Wolf, <clears throat> there's that great moment where uh, Alma and Johan are in there little hut on the island and someone knocks on the door and it's literally the middle of the night you know it's that hour of the wolf and johan says did you lock the door and she says yes and i checked it twice and just as the audience is breathing this sigh of relief like well then they can't get in the door opens and like the demonic uh uh a curator character, I guess it is, uh, Herbrand, I think it's the one who comes mm. in. Uh, or, or no, it's the, uh, the archivist, uh, Lindhorst. Uh, and all those names go back to E.T.A. Hoffman, right? Uh, oh, I didn't realize so, that. Yeah, uh, one of his novels, The Golden Pot, like Veronica is a name from that. Okay. Uh, Herbrand, Lindhorst, uh, you know, and E.T.A. Hoffman's first name was Ernst, which is the name of the other brother in Hour of the Wolf. Uh, so, you know, we could talk about like the, the film's literary influences and everything, but uh, there was just that moment where it's like a ghost can, you know, literally <laughs> open a locked door and walk through it that has its echo in, in The Shining where the, the ghost lets jack out of the freezer by opening the locks on that and you know part of you is kind of angry you're like a ghost can't open a door <laughs> they go through doors but they're you know they're not supposed to be able to turn knobs and stuff uh and and also in the shining you know there are all those moments where the film kind of just uh cuts to black and it says tuesday 4 p.m yeah or uh you know monday or whatever and you know, a lot of people thought that was just annoyingly random until you pointed out that, you know, in a weird way, there's kind of a surrealism going on there, right? Uh, that goes back to Unchien and Delu, where, you know, suddenly it's like six years later, you know, hmm. uh, appearing on a title card in the middle of that film. And, and you get that in Hour of the Wolf, too, right? Where, like, you're two-thirds of the way through the movie, and then the title card of the film just comes back on. It just says Hour of the Wolf, uh, you know, in the middle of the film. 
which creates a sense kind of like persona where it's like the film itself is some weird kind of living organism that's stuttering and you know trying to start over at the beginning halfway through the film you know in persona famously bergman creates the illusion of the film breaking and the projector you know here he has he just kind of throws the title uh, of the film onto a title card and shoves it in the middle of the film uh, so you also have the 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 kind of poisoned relationship between a art a struggling artist and his wife right you know like right. the fact that he's you know abusive of her and the fact that he's got this woman that he wants to escape to and kind of hiding and repressing some desire for um i, I don't know if i'd want to quite draw too many comparisons to the woman in 237 but there is this kind of woman who's away who's not his wife who he does want to have a relationship with um so i guess one of the big questions i have is i don't know what to do with the scene with the boy at the at the at the at the fishing pond the the moment in which he because to me, I, I kept looking at it as a film that's very much about sexual repression and his desire for this woman who isn't his wife, who's not not as an insult to Liv Ullman or anything, but you know, is is much more classically beautiful in terms of how she's presented in the film uh, than she is. Right, the Veronica character is, is very much kind of idealized, um, both in his paintings and and when she's presented in the in the castle. Um, so I. Having that, I was like, oh, I've got my answer to my riddle and my my little crossword puzzles figured out here. This is this is a film about um, the road not taken sexually, and then we get to the the story about the boy, and I it it threw my all of my kind of mental thematic calculus into into <laughs> into the garbage can because I don't know what to do with it. Um, I, I think you had said something on Facebook where you know there it does kind of ring. Uh, it has a certain kind of pedophilic edge to it. Um, so, right. so is is it? Yeah, I, I don't know. Tell me, tell me what to do with the boy scene. Well, I mean, you know, Bergman himself, in a really interesting interview that winds up uh, published with a lot of other interviews he did in that same period, uh, in a book called Images. Mm. Uh, says I have it here uh, he lists all of these characters from his films uh, and he says Hour of the Wolf was an attempt to get at a deep-seated division within myself or within me one that I've explored previously with Amon in Magician, Esther in The Silence, Elizabeth in Persona, uh, the character in Face to Face. I can't remember his name all of a sudden. Uh, and those are all just like the queer characters that he has rattled off. Mm. Like, uh, they're probably... You know, I don't know, you could maybe name seven or eight queer characters in Bergman's films. And he, like, rattles off all but two of them as characters who represent this 
deep-seated division within himself that he's dealing with in Hour of the Wolf. And so I know Peter Cowie, you know, who wrote the first big critical sure. biography of Ingmar Bergman way back in the 80s, uh, or the biggest one in English anyway. Uh, and it's kind of the book that like a lot of people read as the, their first book about Ingmar Bergman. Uh, and it's, it's really a good book. Uh, you know, he basically says that, uh, you know, there's this, I don't know if he uses the word homosexual or bisexual, but he's talking about uh, these kind of homosexual uh, tendencies that the character of Johan has in Hour of the Wolf. And, you know, implying that, you know, if not, you know, uh, a repressed gay man, you know, he's at least a man, you know, uh, who is bisexual, mm. uh, who is, you know, kind of haunted by the gay side of his personality. Um well, and there's and, that scene earlier on the island too, where kind of the the, I, I don't I can't remember the character's name or who he is, but the kind of dandified guy comes over and is like, "Oh, I know who you are," and uh, we have your paint. And yeah, he's kind of following him around, and he gets so angry with him that he punches him, right? Right, and that's just I mean that's typical, you know what what Orson Welles would call dollar book Freud, you know, <laughs> dollar book Freud in relation to Citizen Kane, which is his way of saying, you know, just r really basic psychoanalytic theory, you know, like almost too simplified. Sure. Uh, and he talked about like, you know, Rosebud and Citizen Kane being dollar book Freud. Well, it's also, you know, dollar book Freud, you know, that everyone understands that, and there's actually like recent psychological studies that confirm this that have been replicated that says that people who uh are homophobic yeah to be far more likely to be sexually aroused by same-sex eroticism right so you know uh you know leaving aside people who hate gay people for religious reasons or whatever. If there's someone who's just, whose skin crawls when they're around a homosexual, you know, and chances are you've got someone who has their own issues with their own repressed homosexuality, you know? And, you know, if you've read Freud's, you know, essays, you know, that's just basic. And so the fact that this demon, you know, uh, Herbrandt, you know, goes up to Johan and is, you know, trying to ingratiate himself with him, you know, in the kind of smarmiest possible way. Yeah. And he says something along the lines of, you know, once you get as old as we are, you know, <laughs> you have to be careful and not uh, overexert yourself. And he's just chasing him along the, the ridge of that hill, you know. And you know, that's one of the scenes that causes me to see the film as kind of a black comedy because it's almost funny, you know, how that character is just so clearly like a projection of his own internalized homophobia, you know, the Johan character. 
And uh, so on the one hand, you have this older, you know, creepy gay character trying to ingratiate himself with with Johan, the Max von Sydow character. Uh, and then on the other hand, you have this like pubescent boy in this other scene that's like a flashback scene. You don't know if it's supposed to be true or not. Uh, where Johan is there fishing, uh, uh, you know, in the ocean uh, from these jagged rocks, and this boy wearing only, you know, like a really uh, skimpy short. Yeah, it's real short. And you know, and he's lying on the rocks and throwing his arms back behind his head. You know, he's like posing like Harriet Anderson in some. And, of yeah, the- that's exactly what I was thinking. You know, and and he goes up to Johan's, you know, clothes because Johan's, you know, like just in his pants with his shirt off. And, and the, the little boy goes up and sniffs his boot. Right. You know, it's just really kinky and disturbing and weird. And and, you know, and you don't have to be, you know, a film professor or, you know, Peter Cowie or whatever to notice all the weird kind of homosexual stuff going on there. There was a, a review from the time the film came out, uh, and I can't figure out who wrote this review because it's part of a clipping file uh, from the Pacific Film Archive, and whoever clipped it clipped the name of the critic and the name of the newspaper off of the top of the clipping, But uh, which is too bad because you want to give this guy credit. He writes a really smart review. And uh, he talks about Johan and he says his private and public obsessions assemble in his head for a jamboree. The bird people he craves to paint, the old lady whose face comes off in her hand, the homosexual inclination that he tried to drown. And that's exactly what you get with that, that you know, boy, the half naked boy there who's like, you know, basically flirting with Max von Sydow. And it represents, again, this externalization of his own, uh, you know, ambivalent homosexual desires that, you know, he's trying to snuff out or, you know, as this critic put it, you know, he's trying to drown his own homosexual inclinations by, you know, killing, killing it in the form of this demonic apparition, this demonic boy, uh, and that's a moment that's really very Hitchcockian, right? Where he throws the body of the boy into the water. And, and you then... see it a couple times kind of submerged with the hair going up. It, it, yeah. It, it reminded it's... me, too, of that scene in Night of the Hunter where you see the car under the water and it's kind of this, it, it almost looks like seaweed coming up or something. Right. And, uh, and I always think of Psycho where norman bates tries to uh put the car into the swamp and then you know this moment where you think it's not going to go down and in hour of the wolf you think oh you know the dead body of the boy is floating back up to the surface but as you'll recall at the very end of the film uh when uh johan's a is going to be you know, killed by these uh, demons who may or may not be real. And if they're not real, what does it mean that, you know, that they're killing him? Uh, you have uh, one of the characters say about Johan, uh, 
and this is a paraphrase because I, I can't find my note, uh, says, uh, the mirror has been shattered, but what do the shard show, I think, arts, uh, reflect? Something like that. You know, it's like the mirror is broken, but there's still some sort of reflection that you can almost see in the broken glass. And that line is repeated verbatim like 12 years later in Bergman's From the Life of the Marionettes, which is another film about a character who goes basically insane. Uh, and probably because he's a repressed homosexual and he's been lying to himself and he can't handle the pressure of denying his own homosexuality. And in fact, Bergman in an interview uh, said, um, you know, it's really a pity that he couldn't accept that part of himself. If he would have been able to accept that, it would have been liberating for him. Uh, and on the new Criterion box set where they put more than one film uh, on a single disc. I think it's so, on the same, yeah, right, the marionette. And they grouped them thematically, right? Uh, Peter Cowie told me they were going to do this when I talked to him at the Bergman conference in Sweden in July, or in June. He said, oh, they've come up with this brilliant idea. They're going to do double features, and, and the discs uh, are going to be... Uh, or the films are going to be placed thematically in relation to each other. It's not just going to be chronological. So someone at Criterion, you know, put the two films dealing with, you know, mental illness and homosexuality, you know, onto the same disc. And, uh, you know, and that opens, uh, you know, the question up, you know, is, is this homophobic? But, you know, there's going to be somebody who says it is, but, you know, I think from the perspective of someone from Bergman's generation, it, yeah, to say, you know, it screws you up if you repress who you are, right? And, uh, you know, and like I said in that interview, he says, you know, the, the big tragedy of the character's breakdown and from the life of the marionettes, you know, might not have happened if he would have realized consciously that he was gay or if he would have accepted that it would have been liberating for him and, and you know he wouldn't have wound up in a mental hospital at the end uh, but i mean that actually brings up you know bergman's own experience right because if you've watched the uh the interview with lee volman uh, where she talks about the making of Persona and Hour of the Wolf and Shame and Passion of Anna, those four films they made together right at the beginning of their relationship. Uh, you know, for the first time, she actually uses that phrase. You know, she says, uh, she says uh, that Hour of the Wolf was very close to who Ingmar Bergman had been for some years and what he was struggling with, which huh. is anxiousness and despair and mental illness. And I don't think anyone's actually said Ingmar Bergman struggled with mental illness. I mean, everyone, it was kind of the unspoken sure. thing. You know, people would say, oh, you know, Ingmar Bergman's so depressive. Oh, Ingmar Bergman was a neurotic you know, Pauline Kael, you know, in a, her review of The Seventh Seal, you know, rather unkindly said, or not The Seventh Seal, uh, The Serpent's Egg, said, 
oh, this is the most depressing film, and the de fact that it's so depress depressing has something to do with the, the emotional breakdown Bergman had when he was accused of tax evasion by the Swedish authorities. Uh, what kind of film would we get from Ingmar Bergman if he actually had any real problems? Uh, but, you know, if you're suffering from severe depression throughout your life and you have an anxiety disorder, you know, you have low-level mental illness, which, you know, and after that, you know, that incident in the 70s where, you know, Bergman was hauled off by the authorities and, you know, detained by the police and accused of tax evasion. You know, he went, he was in a mental hospital for a while after that. I mean, he literally was. He just totally broke down. So, you know, here's a man who, you know, kind of like Lars von Trier, right? <laughs> and, you know, uh, I mean, a lot of people said that they thought Lars von Trier was just being hyperbolic when he said he suffered from depression, and then they finally saw Melancholia. Uh, like, no, no. People suffered from depression who said, now I believe Lars von Trier suffers from depression because this film is so accurate to that. And, and I think Hour of the Wolf is really accurate to someone who just suffers overwhelming anxiety. Uh, and... And it's kind of amazing. In that interview in the new Criterion disc, you know, Lee Volman says it was really scary making Hour of the Wolf because here she had just moved to this remote island with this artist, Ingmar Bergman, to be his, you know, significant other. And the first film they make after she moves <laughs> in with him is about an unstable artist who is going nuts, you know, and tries to kill his own wife. And... And Ullman said, I must be very honest, I was very scared. I thought it was a scary movie. I didn't understand so much of it. I was so scared that this man in the movie may jump into this man I was living with, and I hoped it wasn't going to be like that. So, I mean, you know, back to Kubrick again, right? You know, it's like, Leave Ullman sounds like she was, you know, as distraught is making, making Hour of the Wolf as as Shelley Duvall was making The Shining you know it's like you see her terrified in Hour of the Wolf and you're thinking that's not acting because it was apparently really close to to their relationship in some way she was acting out her relationship with her Lee Volvin was acting out her relationship with the man she loved who was suffering from mental illness and she was acting it out in this movie or they were just putting Max von Sydow, you know, in place of Bergman in some ways. I'll have to watch that interview. I hadn't gotten around to that yet, but yeah, coming into hour of the wolf, I think what threw me is I, I had seen it described as a movie about a struggling artist and a ghost story. So when it kind of made that pivot off into repressed homosexual desire i was just like wait what like and and having seen it you know just the one time now like thinking about it more it, it all of a sudden becomes a lot more obvious to me but yeah it was just it was kind of one of those switcheroos i wasn't necessarily expecting um partially i think because outside of the big like five 
one of the th- reasons I'm so excited about this Bergman set is it's going to encourage me to dig deeper, which is, you know, I remember two, three years ago was the first time I had watched like Virgin Spring and some of the, you know, some of the other deeper cuts. And it's just been, it's been such a long time kind of coming to, um, you know, Hour of the Wolf. And I, I, hell, I'm embarrassed to admit that it was three, four years ago when I finally watched the, the Silence trilogy where it was like, you know, I've, so I've always kind of seen him through that lens of religion, and that's kind of where I thought I was going to be engaging with this film on, like through his more religious upbringing and through that kind of morality of his earlier films. Um, so he has had kind of re, kind of watching this film and, and thinking about Persona again. He's been such kind of a chameleon in terms of his style and his themes over his career. I mean, obviously, there's certain through lines, things like the theater that pop up again and again. And, you know, we get it in here where there's the the little shadow puppet show, I think, at the uh, or is it a marionette show at the Baron's Castle. But how would you kind of classify the different movements in his career? What are like the the monuments and the changes that he makes as he progresses? He does have a set of concerns that reoccur uh, across the decades, although he did seem to be more interested in this question of God. Is there a God? And if so, you know, is he worth worshiping or should we hate him? Right. Uh, It's interesting. There's a line in one of his earliest films, Summer Interlude where a young ballerina's boyfriend dies in a diving accident. And uh, she says, uh, I, uh, you know, if I ever met God face to face, I'd spit in, I'd spit in his face. Uh, you know, he's been so horrible uh, to humanity. And, and what's so funny is that in the American first release of Summer Interlude, they actually added nude scenes filmed with body doubles to spice it up. That's right. But they, but they took that out. So it was like in the ni- early 1950s, you, cu- you could have nudity in your film, but you couldn't have someone say, I would spit in God's face in your film. That was, you know, sacrilege was worse than nudity. Uh, but... You know, something interesting happens in the 60s, and that's that, you know, this notion of God sort of becomes replaced, at least in my mind, by, like, the notion of, uh, of like, the patriarchy. Hmm. And I've had a lot of people say, you know, how can you take Bergman seriously, Dan? You know, you're, a, you're an atheist, and Bergman was all caught up with God. And I say, well, by the 1960s, it isn't so much god that he's talking about is he's talking about you know the patriarchy uh as no longer tenable in its authority Hmm. you know that you know after world war ii at some point you know you can't really believe in a moral universe and you know, uh, you know, and him saying that God is absent or God is silent. It's just a way of saying, uh, there's only us, <laughs> it's only us. And, you know, patriarchal ideology is a facade. 
you know, the, all that it represents is really not there, you know, at least mm. not the good stuff. And, you know, like the benevolent father figure that, you know, you see behind everything in Western uh, civilization is just, you know, an illusion. And what, what do we do now that, you know, that that has just dematerialized for us in the space of a decade? So, you know, I mean, you get a lot of things that I think a lot of people found <clears throat> kind of juvenile you know eventually you know there's that famous line in woody allen's manhattan where diane keaton says all right the silence of god you know that was an interesting topic when i was at radcliffe but yeah outgrow it <laughs> and you know and maybe you could say yeah you know being afraid of death and you know struggling over whether or not you believe in god or not is you know something that is a phase a lot of people go through in high school and college but I don't think that invalidates it as an interesting issue. But, but so that's what you get in the 50s uh, with his films, the late 40s and 50s. You know, the, uh, the, the question of mortality, uh, the question of religion. But behind that question of religion and God, there's kind of the question of authority. You know, his very first films were all about kind of despotic authority figures. His first screenplay that he didn't direct himself, Alf Sjorborg directed, it was called Torment. Torment. And and that was a big hit, actually, in America in the late 40s. And it kind of made him famous, even though he just wrote the script. But it was about this despotic uh, Latin teacher who was, like, torturing, you know, one of his male students. And there's a weird kind of homoerotic dynamic going on there, too, between this, this Latin teacher and this beautiful young male student who's about 17 who he's just going after. And when Bergman first emerged, that's what people talked about. They said, oh, you know, he's, he's a, uh, an angry young man of the Swedish theater and film world uh, critiquing despotic authority figures. And, you know, from there you move into movies dealing with mortality and death and, uh, and humiliation, I think, is another big theme in his movies. Uh, and by the mid-60s, you know, the God stuff kind of goes away, but you're still dealing with, with despotic authority. You're dealing with... Uh, kind of man's inhumanity to man for want of better words but you know i think ultimately it comes down to there was a a writer for the new york times several years ago named karen durbin who mm. wrote a little piece on bergman where she said you know here at last was a filmmaker willing to admit how difficult the most ordinary life can be and how alarmingly drastic. And I mean, for me, that kind of just hits the nail on the head, right? You know, like, and a lot of people go to movies to get away from that. You yeah. Know, they, uh, you know, they have the psychotic roommate, you know, they have, <laughs> you know, the brother-in-law who's, you know, threatening to kill themselves. They have, you know, uh, 
and I had someone literally tell me that, you know, because that I like Berg because I had a relatively sheltered life, which is true, you know, but, you know, if you dealt with all that stuff in reality, you wouldn't want to deal with that in film. But, but, you know, I think, you know, people need that. They need to see the reflection from the film screen or the big television, 60 inch television monitor you know, that, that shows the struggles that people go through, you know, whether it's struggling with depression or anxiety or, uh, you know, conflicted feelings of sexuality that you're not even sure what they mean. And, you know, and just, you know, people's capacity for gratuitous meanness, you know, which you get in the final one of those uh, Bergman Island films, as they're called. You know, people talk about the Bergman Island films. It's the four he made toward the end of the 60s. Persona, Hour of the Wolf, Shame, and The Passion, Passion of Anna. And The Passion of Anna is, you know, really, in some ways, just this... I've shown that, and I've had students say that's their favorite film the whole semester in just a film history class because it really kind of goes into that in a way that they can relate to. You know, every college student, you know, has had some experience with someone just, you know, trying to humiliate them or humiliate one of their friends. And, uh, you know, in, in that film, Bergman's kind of puzzling out, you know, how it is people can treat people that way. So, so yeah, how... and all suddenly sounding really super serious, which I think, in a way, is the exact opposite of Hour of the Wolf, anyhow. Because again, I think that was a film that when that people didn't really like it when it first came out, but now it's actually quite popular. It's suddenly kind of had it's having its moment right now. There was a a poll online on one of those Criterion Facebook groups where someone listed all the Bergman films and said, you know, what are your favorite Bergman films? Vote for three or something. And, and the hour of the wolf came in ninth, which doesn't sound like top of the list, but I know a lot of people, it was the, it was the first one they reached for in the, in the set where it was like, Oh, I got this fantastic Bergman set of, you know, a lot of these have been on Blu-ray before. This is the one I'm the most excited about seeing in the set, which is kind of where I came from on it. Again, I, I, I'd missed out on that MGM DVD set, so by the time it was out of print and all that, I was like, I'm not spending hundreds of dollars to try to watch this DVD copy of Hour of the Wolf. So, right. yeah, the the excitement of just kind of seeing that restored and, and done done proper. But it's, you know, it's now, like, liked better than, you know, Virgin Spring, Scenes from a Marriage, a lot of his films. And, and I think in part it's because it's really flippant creepy you know it's like it's a creepy ass horror film and we're talking about all these themes and layers and medicine and stuff but you know you could put this on halloween night and have a really good spooky halloween yeah now it's a scary film it's i i think it's also kind of a tongue-in-cheek comedy in a weird way i mean in the same way that like you can say roman polanski's Knife in the water. <laughs> no, Rosemary's Baby. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, there are people who say, like, Rosemary's Baby is basically funny. a black comedy about, you know, like, the horrors of childbirth. 
and and it's also just amazingly cinematic. You know, you look at Hour of the Wolf and, and those whip pans during the dinner scene and the, uh, you know, the, the uncanny editing. There's that moment where there's the close-up on the old lady and she says to the Lee Volman character, Alma, the wife, you know, touch or hold my hand and, you know, feel the veins and the skin and the bones beneath and you're thinking, well, how'd she get up to her fast enough to hold her hand? Because she was standing like 20 feet away in the previous shot. And then you cut back uh, out for the, the third shot in that sequence, and she's still standing 20 feet away. So, and, you know, when you're watching that, you're just like, damn, you know, it just makes the hair on your end stand up. And it's all these subtle little things, you know, like he's tricking you with these editing strategies so, you know, it's, you know, it's his most cinematic film. Uh, but if you want this kind of coherent movie with uh, a beginning, middle and end and uh, a denouement that in which all the pieces fall into place and you understand exactly what you've seen, that's what you're not going to get. But if you just want a roller coaster ride, you know, from Ingmar Bergman, this is it. Well, that's kind of the perfect note to end on. Thank you so much for your time, Dan. Sure, it was fun. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dan about Hour of the Wolf. As I said, it was uh, Igmore Bergman is always kind of one of those directors who um, I, of course, had known his, his work, but I never got a full taste of him uh, either as an undergrad or as a graduate. It was always a film here and there, and it was kind of in a vacuum. And so having the ability to kind of get some context, then I'm certainly going to check out that uh, Peter Cowie book about him uh, will be will be useful, and I'm really excited to keep kind of working through the Criterion box set for many of these reasons. So it's it's really kind of a, a renaissance moment, as, as Dan spoke about at the beginning. So that's our final episode for 2018, but before I sign off, let me uh, just come up with a couple announcements. First off, if you haven't subscribed via iTunes, you can find us there at Film School Fess Ups. You can find us on SoundCloud. Uh, please spread the word if you've enjoyed what you've heard here. Uh, I know I've kind of been working out some kinks technically and working out my own uh, kind of idiosyncrasies as an interviewer and as a host, so it's certainly been a learning experience with, for me now, uh, coming up on almost 10 episodes. Uh, but it's really been a tremendous opportunity to talk to my peers about some of these films and uh, both be guided through some like I was today and uh, be the guide myself in other turns. So it's that's that's been a tremendous uh, gift, and I've really enjoyed that uh, about hosting this podcast. Uh, so you can find us on iTunes. You can find us on SoundCloud. Please subscribe. Spread the word. And uh, as tacky as it sounds, if you wouldn't mind dropping a rating in there, here and there, that would be uh, useful. Uh, we're still kind of at a fairly low critical mass for, for listeners, and really what's kind of sustaining my interest in doing this is uh, the conversations like the one you heard today. So um, I'd love for more folks to get engaged with uh, some of this work and uh, to pick up some new uh, some new guests and some fresh blood to uh, start off uh, 2019 with. Uh, speaking of which, 2019, we're going to kick off with Maya Smuckler, one of my old colleagues from UCLA. And Maya has a new book out. Um, her PhD dissertation has been adapted into a book called Liberating Hollywood, Women Directors and the Feminist Reform of 1970s American Cinema. This book is coming out from Rutgers uh, later in December, and it's 
I, I have not read it yet, but um, from what I remember her presenting in class and, and discussing this, it, it really has the potential to kind of shake up our understanding of 1970s New Hollywood uh, by providing a necessary intervention that uh, gets us to understand the contributions of directors uh, like Elaine May. And uh, Maya will be walking me through Elaine May's um, Mikey and Nikki. Uh, when it comes out next month on uh, Criterion Disc. So I have not seen that film. Uh, I'm relatively new to Elaine May. I watched uh, A New Leaf last uh, last Christmas break. And uh, Maya's wonderful commentary on the Olive Signature Disc uh, was very much what encouraged me to uh, invite her on and uh, get her to discuss uh, that Elaine May film with me. So please join us in 2019 for Mickey Mikey and Nikki, sorry, I keep wanting to say Mickey. Uh, Mikey and Nikki, and uh, you can find me in the meantime on Twitter at the Cinema Doctor uh, for other announcements, and of course on iTunes and SoundCloud. So thank you so much. Happy New Year, Happy Holidays, and we'll see you in 2019 and at the movies. Take care.